I've been circling this particular Sunday for a while. I've been so excited about bringing you this particular message out of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, You know, we've been bouncing around, as I said last week, we've been bouncing around to different places, uh, noticing different things as as God has laid on my heart to bring. And this one I've been studying, I'll be honest with you, since the beginning of the year, uh, just kind of going through this passage and really letting it soak in because there's a lot here. (laughs) There's a lot that happens in this particular passage, but I think there is something so profound uh, that I just was so excited to share this morning. So uh, let me begin by asking you this question. You kind of be thinking about it in your your head, in your mind, but what do you think of or what's the first image that pops into your mind when I say the word revival? I'm sure that uh, that word is, is perhaps a loaded word. Maybe you think of you know, those old sawdust trails from the tent meetings of the early 1900s and the preaching of like Billy Sunday, perhaps. Maybe that's what you think of. That's a revival. Or maybe you think of, we could say, we could go back to the 1800s. And we think about the, 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 the quote-unquote second great awakening which happened in that century. Or we can even go back uh, the century prior to that for... The first Great Awakening in the 1700s through the preaching of of such figures such as George Whitfield and the like. Or we could even go back even another century to the 1600s in the revival that swept across Europe that we commonly call the the Protestant Reformation. (laughs) All of those are very distinct forms and and, uh, distinct images of the word, I would say, in the movement of the revival among God's people and they all have different sort of colors, different sort of hues, different sort of pictures that each represents. And again, I'll ask, what comes to your mind when I mention that word revival? Perhaps the first thing that comes to mind, I would say the most often thing that comes to mind is this, uh, this image of this meeting with intense enthusiasm and, and religious emotionalism and all that sort of stuff. Revival fire and all that, you know. With people falling out of their pews because, you know, revival is happening or something. I don't know. I don't mean to sort of pop that bubble perhaps, but I think we've done a disservice to what it means to be revived. Generally, spiritually revived by God's Holy Spirit. When we often only associate with those certain things, I think we have done a disservice to that word and what it means and why we should be praying for it at all. I think we've kind of lost what it means to experience revival. Maybe, maybe I don't know, my dad's church has done it, so I'm not going to pick on him too much. But maybe you've, you've seen churches do that, where they have this church sign and they're planning a revival. Revival happening at these specific days, at these specific times. And it kind of just, it makes me chuckle a little bit because I don't think genuine spiritual revival is, is a thing that we can just sort of get by Mixing a few well-organized logistics and the right speakers and checking all the right boxes. That's, it's, it's a meeting it's, and we're praying for revival, but we can't, quote, plan on it. We can't plan to have it as if we can plan what the weather is like tomorrow. <laughs> I don't mean to sound critical or cynical. I really applaud churches and the intent behind such meetings because we're praying for the Lord to do a work. And I think there's something to be said for that, that heart, a heart that's ready, a heart that's open to be revived. I think the goal is there, the, the intent is there, but 
What does Jesus say in the Gospels? He says in John chapter 3 that the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but thou cannot tell where it cometh and whither it goeth. Which is just to say, you and I are not in control of the Spirit of God. He is not our genie like in Aladdin. Where if we just rub the lamp the right way and say the magic words, boom, poof, revival. It's not really how it works. And sometimes I think that we think that's how it works. We can just put things together, put the right amount of logistics and planning and scheduling and all those sorts of things, and automatically this is what will occur. Actually, I would say that revivals aren't really prearranged outbursts of religious emotion, and that's even though that's how we think of them. I actually think that true revivals of, of people, of the people of God that has been seen throughout history are a lot less flashy than all that. True revivals, the ones that stick, the ones that lead to lasting change require a lot more work, a lot more faith, and a whole lot of patience. A lot of patience. Planning a revival can sell. You can sell tickets to that. But I think a true revival to, for to take heart in our hearts, in our minds, to really take effect, to get down to our souls, we might even say. We need to, I would say, cultivate a, a culture of patience regarding revival, which is just I, what I mean is that lasting change doesn't reach hearts and souls through a one-time preaching event in the middle of the summer, happens over the course of time through the course of of what God does on hearts and souls it can and does sometimes people are changed in a moment but I would say the success of a revival is really just the fruit of discipleship the success of a great meeting of of people with with preaching and souls being saved is the fruit of people watering and planting prior to that moment (laughs) There's unseen, unnamed people that went prior, that that did the work, we could say, prior to that specific moment. It happens because people were faithful long before just that one evening. (laughs) And I would say that's indeed what has been, uh, what has allowed the great revivals of all those bygone eras possible. It's made possible by the untold labors of others. That we don't often remember, that we don't often think about, but they were there, they were ministering. Unnamed pastors who are likewise preaching along with the stalwarts such as Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and the great voices which led to the Great Awakening. There were pastors who were faithful in churches long before that. And I think that's exactly what is here evidenced in Nehemiah chapter 8. Which I think is really uh, fascinating to me. Because what we're going to see as we examine this chapter, which I hope to do this morning, is just where there's going to be indications, I would say, four indications of true revival. But there's also one basic element that makes it all possible. And that's what I want us to really focus in on. Just a little bit of background. Nehemiah 8 is a very, very momentous chapter for the people of Israel. The wall is rebuilt around Jerusalem. It's an amazing moment. After years of captivity and and all of that and and seeing their home in ruins, there is now a wall that is completely rebuilt around this beloved city, the beloved city of Jerusalem. It's quite the moment. 
You can imagine the people, they are primed, they are ready, they have goosebumps after centuries of of being uh, away and being uh, sort of away from God. This is a moment of true revival and it breaks out. As God's people are struck with this feeling, as it it talks about in verse 17, of very great gladness. Notice verse 17, all the congregation of them that were come again under the captivity made, uh, of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths for since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. People are revived. They're joyful. They are smiling. They are praising God. As we sung this morning in almost every song, you noticed that word came up, hallelujah. They are singing these praises to Yahweh. And it comes, it's preceded by this amazing sermon, we could say, that the prophet or the priest Ezra gives. But I don't think we should take this as a moment of just spontaneous reaction to a sermon. It's not just an in-the-moment response to what Ezra was here proclaiming. Actually, you see, years before this chapter, the Persian king Cyrus, he issued a decree. You can read about it in the first chapter of Ezra, Ezra chapter 1. He issued this decree which allowed God's people to go back to their homeland, which led, of course, to the priest Ezra going back to Jerusalem and sort of, uh, sort of getting everything together, re- arranging for the reconstruction of the temple. That's really what all of the book of Ezra is about. His preaching ministry, yes, his uh, dedication to the law of God, the reformation of God's people, we could say, but also the reconstruction of the temple. It takes some years to do that, but now it's 13 years later. This moment in Nehemiah chapter 8 is 13 years after uh, what Ezra has accomplished. Nehemiah comes, as you perhaps, perhaps you're familiar with the story of this book, Nehemiah. He comes and he has all of these plans and these dreams to rebuild the walls to his city. He goes to his king. Well, we'll just go there. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He, he, he shares just this passion, this burden that he has in him. A burden that actually is making his countenance, it says, look like he's sick. Nehemiah 2 verse 1, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence, and wherefore the king said unto me, why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of the heart. Then I was very sore afraid, and said said unto the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For thou, what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, then I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be? And when thou wilt return, so it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. So he goes back. (laughs) Plans, he arranges for the reconstruction of the temple, or excuse me, of the walls of Jerusalem. This is his burden. This is his mission. This is the thing that God has laid on Nehemiah's heart. How can I rejoice when I see my city in such abject ruin? 
So he goes here, and chapter 8 uh, is sort of the culmination of that. But if, if you read in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 25, uh, guess how long it took to, uh, to, uh, to rebuild the temple? Well, not the chapter 6. Um, I lost my, I wrote down the wrong verse. There's a verse in here, and it says that they finished the project in a mere 52 days. 52 days is all it took for Nehemiah and his group to come back and rebuild this wall around this city. And it just makes me think. You can imagine the people. Imagine the people of God. They have just seen this work of Ezra. They've just now seen this work of Nehemiah come upon this city. They've been allowed back in. All of these things are priming them to hear a word from Yahweh. Yahweh's temple is rebuilt. Yahweh's city is rebuilt. We could say that it's time for God's people, Yahweh's people, to be rebuilt. And that's exactly what happens Verse 1, back in chapter 8, all the people, all the people of Israel, they have gathered themselves, as it says, as one man into the street that was before the water gate. They're there, they're assembled in this massive crowd, as it says, as one man. They're there for a singular purpose. They're there for a united intention to hear this word. And it says, and they spake, they clamored unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. They're begging him, read, read, Ezra. Read from this book. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation. Both of men and women and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street. So he begins reading. Reading from those ancient texts as it says from midday or excuse me from morning until midday. And I'll just make the joke because you're already making it in your head and you thought my sermons were long. Here he's reading for hours on end. This is Ezra. He's reading from these old scrolls. And as he's reading notice. Notice the end of verse 3. Because this I think is important. It reveals the people's hearts. Notice it says. And the ears of all the people were attentive. Unto the book of the law. They were listening. Not just listening. They were heeding. They were soaking on his words. We could say they were listening with intensity. Not just hearing the words that were spoken. They were absorbing them. They were on the edge of their seat as it were. Waiting upon Ezra's words. I get the picture, and I think the picture applies. They were sort of like leaning in. You ever get on the edge of your seat, and you kind of lean in to hear a little bit better. <laughs> That's what they're doing here. They're leaning in to hear these words of Yahweh read and explained unto him. And notice what happens, verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up of their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. It's a revival. God's law is brought to bear on these people. In such a way that they are brought to a realization of their sin. They're brought to a realization of who they are in the sight of God. Notice verse 9. And Nehemiah, which is the, which is the Tirshatha, which is almost like a governor, we could say. And Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. 
mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. They are crying. They're mourning. They're hearing the strict righteousness of Yahweh being declared unto them by the preacher Ezra. And they are here under such conviction. They're weeping and mourning in the streets. They're crying. Which I think is exactly what Ezra's sermon was supposed to do, by the way. It was to stir this people to see their guilt and their failure and their shame. All of the reasons for their exile. They are made plain here by the reading of the law. But notice, I love this. Notice what Ezra and the Levites teach the people. Verse 9, again, it says, mourn not nor weep. Verse 10, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet. And send portions unto them for whom, is, for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people saying, hold your peace for the day is holy. Neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. <laughs> Israel was right to mourn. They were right to be sorry for the ways that they had failed God, the ways that they had rejected Yahweh. We're in the midst of that series through First and Second Kings. And we are in the midst of all of those ways in which now these people here are feeling the effects of. The ways in which Israel turned their back on their one true deliverer. And these people here are being mindful of that and they are mourning because of it. And yet I love that Ezra and the Levites, we could say like the elders... They're there explaining to the people. They're, they're taking the words which were read and bringing them to the people's understanding. And they make sure to mention that their weeping ought not to eclipse what God is accomplishing in them. Notice he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Yes. Israel's past was a disheveled mess. You can read about it in all of the history books of the Old Testament. Then the ways in which they totally bastardized the religion of Yahweh. They made it a joke. They included all of this adulterous affairs and worships and idolatry and amongst the people of God. And yet, what? The joy of the Lord is your strength. And they are here living proof of that. Because what has now God done in this moment with these people? He has restored them, returned them to their homeland. And now he's renewing and reviving them according to his holiness. <laughs> he's doing this work in his people according to the words that God had given to all of their forefathers. Again, according to his holiness. Did you, did you see how it was mentioned three times in those verses? That Ezra and the Levites, they declared, this day is holy. They were living proof that God is great in faithfulness. Because of what he is now accomplishing in his holiness, not his people's. They knew all too well that they were not holy. That they didn't warrant a visit from Jehovah. And yet Jehovah is faithful. 
And that's why they're told to rejoice. Did you see in verse number uh, verse number 11, they were told to go out and prepare. And it says in verse number 12, they, they went out and made, they made great mirth. Not a word we use, but it just means joy. Rejoicing. The type of elation that you might get if your particular team wins a particular game later tonight. That's the type of mirth we can sort of relate to, right? And that's here what the Ezra and the priests are telling the people. Make great mirth. Because God is fulfilling his word. So you see this sorrow that Israel here demonstrates is but the prelude to what God wanted to accomplish in them and for them. Because he is the Holy One of Israel. And this is a great revival that breaks out among these people. And notice they are making joy. And notice verse 13. And on the second day. We're gathered together, the chief of the fathers of all the people under the priests and the Levites and to Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. It lingers. This feeling of revival wasn't just in that moment when Ezra was preaching. They go to sleep, they wake up the next morning, and they say, we want more. They go back to Ezra. Tell us more out of this book of the law. We want to hear more of these words. At which point Ezra, he reads about this amazing festival called the Festival of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, as it's also called, which was supposed to be observed in that time, in that time of the month, we could say. Notice verse 14. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the Feast of the Seventh Month. And that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and the street of the water gate and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so, and there was very great gladness. This festival of booths was a week-long feast which was meant to remind Israel of all of those days of wandering remember how they communed with Yahweh during those years of wandering through the wilderness they would uh, they would construct a temporary tabernacle which was meant to be taken down and torn down and moved to the next place it had this very transient temporary feeling and yet What was true in all of those years of wandering? God's faithful presence. These booths that were constructed were just like that. They were mini tabernacles. That's what the word means. You can read about this particular feast in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16. And it's something that was meant to serve as this community-wide reminder to memorialize the faithfulness and the deliverance and the presence of God throughout all of those years of wandering. That were seemingly aimless, that were seemingly endless. And who was with them? (laughs) Yahweh was. And it's been a while. (laughs) 
I don't know if, if Nehemiah is just being a little bit hyperbolic or if he's being true, as he says in verse number 17, that it hasn't been since the days of Joshua, the successor of Moses, that the people of Israel has even celebrated this feast. It's been that long since the people forgot. It's been that long since they consciously meditated on who it was that brought them out of that wilderness. But here, these people, they're stirred, they're moved by the words of God. I love, I love this, this little detail. Notice in verse 14 where it says, and they found. And then verse number 16, so the people went forth. <laughs> They found what was written and they went out and did it. They weren't just hearers of the word. They were doers also, as it says in James chapter 1. They found, they heard, and they went out and they did it. This word is true and it's ours. And so we must make it true in our lives. It's a bona fide revival, a true, genuine revival of the people of God. Decisions. They're happening. People are changing. Something's brewing in Jerusalem. But you must not mistake this revival fire, this scene of great rejuvenation and reawakening in the people of God is not something that's super rare. That's only because these were Old Testament people. Ezra was not in possession of some sort of secret special sauce by which he, he preached some message which led to this revival. Actually, what did he do? He read from the word. He actually, in fact, nine times in 18 verses, by the way, nine times that phrase, the book of the law, occurs. And he's preaching it. Verses 3 and 8 and 18, it uses this word reading. Notice verse 3. And he read therein. Notice verse 8. So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly. Verse 18, also day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read in the book of the law of God. Read is just a word which means to preach, to proclaim, to declare, to sound forth. And they're sounding forth this, the book of the law of God. So what precipitated, what preempted this great revival and reawakening of these people of God is nothing other than the rediscovery, we might say, of God's word. Ezra is not preaching from Romans. He's not preaching about how the cross has spoken. He is preaching, we could say, out of, we don't know where he was reading from. But how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, you can raise your hands mentally. How many of you started a reading program at the beginning of the year and you get to Leviticus and you're like, wow, I can't get past this. And then usually your reading program halts. Because I won't lie, Leviticus is hard to read through. (laughs) There's lots of really meticulous, detailed things. That's what Ezra is reading out of. He's reading out of the law. The book of the law of God. And he's reading about all of these things which make the people of God fall to their knees. Because they're given this image of the holiness of God that they cannot stand up against. They rediscover this word. And that's what, is this, that's what this achievement is all about. 
This revival that happens here uh, in the streets outside of the gate, uh, outside of the water gate, is not an achievement brought on by perfect planning, by strategy sessions, and all those sorts of things. Neither was this a moment for, uh, that was given to quote unquote relevant preaching. Sermons that made the people feel good, that spoke to their felt needs, and all of those sorts of things. Ezra wasn't entertaining the people by including all these jokes to try and make the people listen up. This is an achievement of the Spirit of God, working in and through the Word of God as it was proclaimed to and for the people of God. That's this revival. He's standing and proclaiming the words of God Period. And this is not new. Again, this is not new for Ezra. He's been doing this for a while. He's been at the same thing with these same people for years before this moment. He's been committed to this word of God and restoring it to the rightful place in the hearts of God's people. I want to take you back. Just flip a couple pages back to Ezra chapter 7. And notice, notice his commitment to this very thing. Notice Ezra chapter 7. Look at verse, well, I'll read verse number 9. It says, For upon the first day of the first month began he, that is Ezra, to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments he had already decided beforehand this is what I'm doing this is what I'm preaching this is what I'm proclaiming no matter what it's this word that he has committed himself to and now years have passed years have gone by and he's never witnessed anything quite like this no breakout of revival no moment when people are falling on their knees. And yet all through those years, he is committed to the word of God. And I could even say that this moment in Nehemiah, when the people of God are revived, is the fruit of his labor for all of the years beforehand. I thought about this. What if Ezra had given up? What if he was preaching so much and, and he, was, he was preaching the words of God to the people of God and they weren't responding how he wanted them to? What if he had just gotten discouraged and packed it in? These people aren't worth it. I'm going to go back. Go back to King Cyrus. It's a lot better. I had a lot cozier of a gig back there. Why am I here in Jerusalem preaching to these people that don't even want to hear me? He's faithful to the word. Steadily, uh, committedly laboring for the glory of Yahweh. Not because he wanted to see results. Because he left those results up to God. He says, this is the word that I'm committing myself to. <laughs> to make known the book of the law of God. To make known the laws and the words of the Father. Such is what Ezra did. And such is what we see here in Nehemiah 8. This revival comes out because God's word is rediscovered. And that's how it's always been throughout history. Every revival, you can study all of them. All those great revival moments throughout all of the ages of history. You'll find that almost every single one was triggered by this reawakening to the awesomeness and the authority of the word of God. And how it speaks to souls. 
Indeed, almost every revival, you could sort of, you could summarize it. A group of faithful Christians, they find the word and they hear the word and they go out and do the word. (laughs) Exactly what has happened in this passage. They hear the word proclaimed and they're like, this needs to happen. And so they go out and they do it. I think that's how the spirit of God works. He works in us. To bring about his will and and bring about his purposes. To make known his truth. What do you think? I, I love to study the reformer Martin Luther. He's one of my favorite characters of history. Because he has this edge to him, right? There's this edge that's like, who, Martin Luther. Because <laughs> he said some things that are kind of weird and funny. And, but he also stood on some very solid truth. And what do you think he credited for all of the sweeping reform that came, upon, uh, came across Europe? Again, I won't rehash the, when I, I preached about Martin Luther last year. I won't rehash it, but he wasn't setting out to start a movement. He was setting out to ask a question to the teacher in Wittenberg. He just wanted to have a conversation about this disparity between indulgences and what he's finding in the gospel, finding in Romans. And it led to this wildfire of a movement that swept across Europe. Again, because the people were primed for that. But notice, he says later on in his later years, he says, quote, I have opposed the indulgences and all the papists, but never by force. I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. The word did it all. It brings him, that is Satan, distress when we only spread the word and let it alone to do the work. For the, for the word is almighty, and it takes captive the hearts. And if the hearts are captured, the evil work will fall of itself. <laughs> I did nothing, he says. The word did it. The word did it all. That reformation that we are still learning about, that we're still feeling of the effects of, wasn't Luther's movement. It was, Europe was turned upside down, not because of this German monk, but because of this word of God. And it was rediscovered for all its truth and preciousness and holiness and worth. For what it proclaimed, for what it said. It was the word and the spirit working through it in the hearts of people. Who were primed to hear a message of forgiveness of sins. It is God's word alone that remains the fundamental element of every single revival. You want a revival? Commit to this word. Because notice what it does. These are my four points. And no, I'm not going to preach even longer. Four points of quick application that I see from this passage. Points that I think ought to speak to us here in this moment in 2022 in Stonington Baptist Church in rural Pennsylvania. (laughs) What does the word of God do? The word of God, number one, galvanizes our assembling. Galvanizes is a word that just means propels. It moves. It it advances. it, It excites the way we assemble. Look at verse one. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. Everyone has come together for one 
purpose. To hear the book of the law opened. This was an accident. They didn't just have a chance meeting where they all just happened to be in the same place at the same time. They are moved. They are excited to gather and assemble with the people of God. Why? To hear the word of God. So it is with us every Sunday. We aren't just here by accident. We're not just here by random happenstance. We are here, and I hope and I pray that you're excited to be here. Excited to hear these words. Not because I'm here, not because your friend is here, because this word is here. That's what we have. That's what's so precious. And when the word is open, the spirit goes forth and the people of God rejoice. The word galvanizes our assembling. Number two, it informs our proclaiming. Number, uh, verse number eight, I think, is a, wor- is a verse that definitely describes what I aim to do every single Sunday and what we aim to do in every single little event where the word is opened. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. It is distinctly the word, only that word, and that is the word that we give the sense of as we read it through proclamation, through conversation, through giving the understanding of it. Those, those names that were mentioned, the names that we can stumble over in verses 4 and in verse number, uh, number 7. Yes, I did not intentionally try to skip over those because I didn't want to say, I couldn't pronounce them. Um, you can read them there. You can find them there. But it's basically like elders. They were there hearing Ezra preach. And they are there with perhaps little groups. And they're explaining the word as he's preaching it. It's an amazing scene to think about. And it's distinctly the word. Distinctly this word of God. You know, I, I'm not going to pick on some other church or whatever. I'm not going to try and call anyone out. But it makes me sad when I hear about other churches and they're not preaching from the Bible. They're preaching from something else. I love to watch movies, but it's hard to preach from a movie every single week. You see, other churches do movie series and all those sorts of things. It's the Word of God. This is what changes souls. Not my opinions about Whatever, politics or whatever. You don't want to hear that. Trust me. You don't want that. You want this word. I pray that you want it. They're excited to hear the word and to hear the word distinctly. And notice number three, the word of God guides our understanding. Verses two and three and then in verses seven and eight, that word pops up. Notice verse two. And all that could hear with understanding... And notice verse number four, or verse number three, before the men and the women and those that could understand. Verse number seven, and all these guys, it says, are causing the people to understand the law. Verse number eight, and cause them to understand the reading. They're making a decided and a concerted effort to guide these people into the knowledge of the truth. They weren't sharing their opinions. They weren't sharing their beliefs. They weren't sharing their uh, preferences. It was the word. This is what the word says, and this is what it means. And this is how we go out and live it. 
They were relaying what the word said. And number four, the last point I would say is just the word of God inspires our obeying. They understand what is now here said and they go out and they live it. They go out and they do it. This understanding is what these led these people to obey. Here's what it says and here's how we should respond. And I love the fact, if you read the verses just prior to where they discover, it says that they found and they went forth. It's not obedience out of misery. It's not obedience out of fear that God might punish us if we don't. It's obedience out of joy, out of mirth. We get to do this. Look at how awesome it is when the people of God obey the word of God. They're obeying because they delight in this word that they have found to be so true and precious and good. Those, for me, are, I would say, the elements of revival. If you want to pray for revival, and I pray that you do, revival in your family, revival in your home, revival in this church, revival in this community, in this nation, in this world. If you ask me how to accomplish it, we need to only point to this right here. This is what brings about revival. We don't need something extra. We don't need some sort of secret sauce to bring about the revival that we pray for in this nation. To bring this people to its knees. We have all that we need right here in front of us in this Bible. In this word of God. Don't pray for revival with a closed Bible. (laughs) How often do we do that? We're praying, God, work. God, move in us. And we have to brush off the dust as we open our Bible in the morning. Sadly, I feel like churches across this country, that is exactly their state. They're praying for the Holy Spirit to, quote, unquote, break out. And they have not yet opened the word of God. This is... Where we meet with the Father. We see what he did and he, what he is doing and what he one day will do. It all comes from here and the spirit of God works in us as we read the word of God. And I would say, my friends, there is nothing more urgent than that. The, the ongoing, the constant declaration of God's word. For its truth, for its hope, for its peace, for its meaning. This is what I would say, what I would pray that this church is committed to. Pray that our hearts are committed to. Again, if we want to pray for revival, it starts with each and every one of us here in this room. Not for some magical hand writing on the wall. But we pray for God to do a work in us. And he does that work through his word and through his spirit. Are you praying for revival? Are you praying with an open Bible? Because that's how God works. So if you ask me, you know, this question has been asked a lot because of the state of this country. Is America beyond the point of no return? I would say no. But I would say it doesn't start in Washington if this country is going to be turned around. It starts in sanctuaries. It starts in churches. 
That's where revival begins. When God comes back and he's judging us and judging this world, it doesn't start in Washington, D.C. It starts in the house of God, it says. What are we proclaiming? What are we living for? What are we reading? What are we committing our lives to? I pray it's the word. And I pray years from now, if God breaks out and does a reviving work in this country, we can look back and we can say with thankfulness, with truthfulness, it's the word that did it. The word did it all. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.